Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 180 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday afternoon, September 29th, 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, it's, it's been an uneventful couple of weeks since last we recorded. Why is it that we've slipped into this bi-weekly recording schedule? Because we're both too damn busy and because the world, the world is spinning way too fast. It's, it's funny because we actually have probably more content than we know what to do with. And yet we have less time than ever for similar reasons. So with apologies for anyone we inconvenienced by kind of quietly switching to an every other week schedule. It's well, we don't, have to, we don't have to formalize that. We can still aspire yeah. to record every week. Absolutely. Don't be surprised. We, we may yet show up with some emergency. We may yet show up as a emergency podcast I mean, over the next six weeks. What do you think? Or maybe I mean, ele- the next two months. Election day is what, five weeks from today? I could see some podcasting opportunities in the future. Let's hope not, though. Let's hope we actually have so little to talk about that we just can't even pull it together. Maybe some deep dives instead. Uh, all I know, I mean, all I know is, you know, it's we just finished Yom Kippur, right? And and uh, the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are usually the, you know, the the most sort of religious part of the of the Jewish calendar in any given year. Um, and it started on Friday night, September 18th, with some rather shocking news. Elaborate. Uh, Justice Ginsburg? Yes. yes. Um, so <sighs> it's just, I, you know, I, I, there, there's this joke and this meme out there about how 2020 keeps trying to one-up itself. And frankly, at this point, I think, you know, 2020 should save some stuff for 2021. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's going to be awfully hard for the people writing next season to keep up with uh, all the plot lines that have sort of been uh, brought out this year. Yeah, the the, the passing of Justice Ginsburg um, and then all that follows in the aftermath of that uh, – Shall we talk about that as as a segment in in and of itself the the nomination of Amy County Barrett and you know what that lineup change in the court might pretend in in areas that relate at least to the rule of law topics we cover. Sure. Um, I don't know if we have any specific. I don't think we have any specific uh, kind of core national security topics that are actually on the court's calendar now where it looks like that would be in, in any sense outcome determinative, but we'll, we'll let's come back to that as our first topic. Actually, I think that um, that certainly deserves top billing given the, just the, the larger magnitude of it. Um, we'll do a, a TikTok update. God, Lord knows that's been busy. Uh, um, you, might, you might say a, a TikTok, TikTok. Uh, we'll do a TikTok. We, we do need a TikTok, TikTok. Um, uh, that's not really T squared. It's uh, what's to the fourth power. Do we have a shorthand for that? Uh, well, same with the TT theme. How about Trump's taxes? <laughs> We've also got Trump's taxes uh, uh, to talk about. That's a lot of T's. We got to stop this alliteration. We'll pivot to FISA developments and in FISA related things. We've got two things we've been promising forever that are basically a month old now. Um, the Ninth Circuit's decision in United States versus Moalan, um, which almost ruled on the, the applicability of and the outcome of the Fourth Amendment analysis for what had been the old bulk telephone metadata program. So we'll talk about what the Ninth Circuit sort of said there, and then we'll pivot and note the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court's uh, opinion, which was released um, not that long ago, though increasingly long now. Uh, it was the, the long-awaited opinion explaining the details of its annual recertification of Section 702 collection. And so that that was actually a decision from last December, but it, it came out basically the beginning of this month. 
And then we'll pivot to another one we keep promising. This one's all too of the moment. Um, the Fourth Circuit's decision in an anti-riot act case, uh, United States versus uh, Miscellus, very interesting and important free speech opinion with a lot of current relevance. We've got Bo Bergdahl back in the news with Bergdahl developments. I mean, there's there, it's not it's not just Bergdahl developments, Bobby. It is Bergdahl. Uh, it, it is a Bergdahl Nashiri crossover episode. Oh my God! Um, this, is, <laughs> this is like when Laverne and Shirley would appear on Happy Days. Um, that dates me pretty good. I was uh, just about to say that that's your crossover. <laughs> um, you know, do they? Are there any good recent sort of sitcom crossover examples that work better that are like from shows someone of the past twenty years? might have watched i mean the last sitcom i really watched was um parks and recreation so i'm not really sure i can think of a good crossover all right uh listeners i'm sure there's some more recent analogies than laverne and shirley in happy days hook us up um and, and it doesn't count if it's a law and order to law and order crossover those those don't count but there was there, there were, weren't there a couple of law and order homicide life on the street crossovers totally. yeah i was kind of lumping that in the, the, like the baltimore crew and the new york crew or, or more the point cool. the, the NBC, you know, the, the intra NBC. You get to have Ice T and Ben Brad in the same episode. That's good. Do you know stuff. that, like, do you know that, like, the first episode of Law and Order aired thirty years ago this month? Dun, dun. How do we not have that sound effect queued up? We've got to update our sound effect game. The Law um, and Order uh, chords are, of course, so iconic. Uh, <laughs> almost. <laughs> um, should we comment real quick on on Baseball Palooza's? I'm not actually much of a fan of this NHL style. Everybody's in except for the the really bad teams. Everyone's right. in except for the Mets. Except, yeah, that goes not saying. I mean, what do you think of this round robin eight teams on a side format? I mean, yeah. it's just like whatever. This year barely counts. Let's have right. fun. With I it. mean, it didn't it didn't really feel like a real baseball season anyway. So why why bother with the? I mean, the weirdest part is going to be. Not the first round, but then when they move to the neutral sites to Houston and Arlington yeah. for the second rounds and the and and the success. I mean, someone was pointing out that there's an outside possibility you could have a Cubs White Sox World Series played in Dallas. <laughs> you know, actually, it's funny you say that because my sort of sleeper pick to go farther than expected would be the White Sox. Everybody's sleeping on them because for whatever reason, the, the the White Sox just don't get the same level of attention and love. And they've got some really interesting young players. Uh, so, anyways, you heard that here first. I will say that that Houston uh, location—that's probably the only way the, Astro, the Astros fans are going to be sending any live uh, next round baseball. The, the, well, there's there's a question about who season in for the Astros. I'm afraid whose season ended sooner, the Mets or the Giants? Hmm. Explain that one. The I mean, the Giants are terrible. The Giants, you know, the the football Giants, right? Oh. Got- <laughs> I thought you meant San Francisco Giants. Yeah, no. boy, they're uh, they're definitely. Uh, is this the Trevor Lawrence sweepstakes? Is that what's going on with Big Blue? Uh, I don't know. It's a solemn model. It would be nice to. I mean, on the one hand, I'm so busy that not having to worry about sports is useful. On the other hand, it would be nice to have something to get excited about. Yeah, I, I was feeling for you. I know you're a Giants fan. They they just seem awful. How about the fact that the the Washington football team is just like you know, let's just be the Washington football team. Um, and, and, and WFT is so close to WTF. I can't help but notice that. <laughs> new, new, new name, same, 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 same mediocrity. Washington team, colon, football. It's WTF um, takes the field. There's, there's an old joke, and I, I never remember, I, never, I can never tell it quite properly, about um, you know, the Washington Redskins as a team name was just a name that evoked all kinds of 
horrible, you know, historical abuses and treachery and just sort of racism and all of this bad institutional stuff. And also the Redskins part. <laughs> well, that may be an old joke, but that's new to me. That's pretty great. Um, what would, do you have, look, uh, first of all, listeners, sorry if we're boring you, but Steve and I have not caught up in a couple of weeks. So Stop man. apologizing for this. This is why people, I, t- I mean, if people don't, if people don't actually want to listen to us, then they've got the wrong podcast. This is true. There, there are others. There are others. Um, so, do you th- do you have a favorite? Like, if you could name the Washington football team, what what would you what would you mascot them with? That's a verb now. Mascot them. I mean, I love to call them the Washington Generals, but that's for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's great! The Washington Generals, and then just I, so, to make you crazy. They could have a picture of like the AG. On the exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, the grammatically incorrect Washington Generals. It's an know, adjective, not a noun. I had actually had a strong view as um, when the Expos moved to Washington, I actually had a really strong view that the right thing to do was to name the Expos the Grays, right after the Homestead Red Grays, the, yeah. the Negro League team that played, that dominated in Washington for so long. Yeah. Grays, I, Grays is an awesome name. Yeah. But, but no, um, that would actually, be great. I mean, wouldn't that be a good way to kind of flip their, their, uh, their yes. problems around and be right. the Washington Grays? Now, of course – this leads to some challenges for their for their uh, team color branding, of course. Um, you, you're really you're like, wait, why aren't your uniforms all gray? But you know what? Maybe that's what will turn them around. I mean, listen, it, it's hard enough to stand out in that league, right? You know, I mean, the, the Raiders are classically silver and black. You know, why can't you have a team whose dominant color is gray? Um, yeah, you know, I mean, they could do it. I just think they're attached to their historic branding. I um, know. Uh, the Senators, would you dare do that? Or is it like... No. Like, just, First in war, first in peace, last in the American last League. American League. <laughs> um, you know the, the 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 name Washington Bullets is lying around unclaimed for a while now. Yeah, not sure. They that's what you want to go back with. But I, uh, I think the Washington Wizards was a real miss. So do I. Yeah. Um, I, I'm telling you, Washington Generals. It just it seems to it captures a lot of a lot of you know a lot of feels. Priceless. All right. Okay. So, uh, what else? We, we got stuff to do. Something about uh, we we have a story that's so old it's new again. We've got a story about uh, Gitmo military commission judges. Uh, there's a new judge in the 9/11 case. I'm not, where have I heard this before? <laughs> well, it's only the fifth in the last two two years and I don't know one month. You know, should they lean into this and just kind of go to like a daily rotation? Judge a month. Officer of the day, it's like oh. Well, this is good. I mean, this is going to dovetail with the Bergdahl story because to to spoil the punchline, the Bergdahl story is that we had another military judge get in trouble for um, applying to be an immigration judge while presiding over a high profile military case. So, you know, it's almost like there's a broader structural problem with military judges that some institution with control over the process, you know, maybe I don't know, Congress might want to think about looking into one of these days. Ah, boy, I get, I can think of all kinds of things to say, but really we've already said it all. I know, seriously. This keeps happening. All right. If we, if we had, if we had far more sophisticated editing capacities, we could do an episode, I think that was just literally cuts of us from like, you know, (laughs) like we wouldn't even have to say anything new. It's just, oh, play, play that bite from episode 48. There's a, there's a Simpsons episode where they, uh, it it is kind of a clip show. And at the end they kind of go meta and they they have this whole song bit that's sorry for the clip show. (laughs) We'll have to do that one time. Now we've got a great frivolity at the end today. We're going to, we have a debate tonight, friends, a a presidential debate. God help Um, us. 
sort of a Thunderdome type situation emerging for tonight. We're going to talk about our bingo cards and we will, we will agree on a NSL podcast bingo card and we'll, we'll get that circulated in time for you to uh, have it in your, in your hands and ready to score the, the debate tonight. I don't are, you actually, are, you, are you are you committing to do, are you're committing to putting this out because I'm not going to have time. This I, I know, I know, I know. I see what you did there. Yes, I will get this out there. We'll we'll do it in real time. I've got a we've got a, a five by or a six by five grid going. Is that so? My, my, five by five grid. Five by five. My bingo card's going to start with not watching because watching the Yankees and the Indians. I think you're going to have more fun. Um, I actually really debated about whether to watch this thing tonight. I finally decided. Um, I will try, but I'm not promising to finish it. But maybe the bingo aspect will hold me in. Do there. or do not, Bobby. There is no try. There's no try. Thank you, Master. Uh, by the way, rewatched. Um, I rewatched the third prequel uh, with my kids this weekend. Episode three. Yeah, episode three. So, Revenge of the Sith. Um, I think that what I feel like is like you could reshoot it with different dialogue, but keep all the plot points, and you could reshoot it with less cheesy CGI different actors in the whole deal. And if you redid it, you could basically take the developments and you could totally make that work as a really good Star Wars movie. Um, there's n- there's nothing too structurally wrong with it, I think. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. Like, I wouldn't say that about the first or second ones. No, no, no. I, I, listen, I always thought, I, I always thought that um, th- the episode three was the best of the first three and that, you, and that like, yeah, but I'm just not sure how how strong a claim that is. Yeah, yes, yeah, it's like congratulations, you won the contest. <laughs> Ta- tall, right. tallest, uh, tallest, short person. Exactly, exactly. All right, okay. So let's start with um, the passing of Justice Ginsburg, uh, and then and then related to that, the nomination and the push to confirm. Uh, I guess it's going to be prior to the election, the, the looming confirmation of Amy, Amy County Barrett. Um, there's obviously a, a million things that are being said. People don't need us to, to recap some of the more obvious and non-national security ones. Um, the switch in personnel, do you anticipate this is going to have a potentially outcome determinative uh, effect on any particular area of sort of rule of law interest, if not core national security law, uh, in the way that you pointed out a few things that with the move from Kennedy to Kavanaugh, there were a few things where it was pretty clear they had divergent views. Now, obviously, Ginsburg and Barrett, very different uh, perspectives across so many issues. But is there anything that really jumps out as a already close question? For example, do you think, as, as some people have just jumped to the conclusion that she'd be in Trump's pocket somehow on um, rule of law issues, broadly speaking, such as election-related issues, I'm pretty skeptical, just as I'm skeptical that Kavanaugh and Gorsuch would just be somehow automatically in his pocket if there was something like that. What do you think? I, so I'm 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 skeptical, but I'm not satisfied. I think is is what I would say, right? Which is, um, I I don't think there are any straight up national security issues where you know justice. A, a Justice Barrett replacing Justice Ginsburg is going to tip the court because I don't think the Chief Justice was ever likely to side with the progressives on any sort of high-profile national security. Yeah. Gitmo, um, you know, suspend habeas, right? Suspension clause, surveillance. I mean, all that right. stuff. So you we, know. we weren't 5-4 before. Or right. we certainly weren't 5-4 running the other way before. Right. Um, but I think you're right to to put to point to the rule of law stuff. And there, you know, I'm just not sure. Um 
because there have been, Bobby, a handful of cases in the last, I don't know, year or so where I was really surprised it was even 5-4, right? Where, you know, I was surprised that, for example, Kavanaugh and or Gorsuch didn't join the chief and the other lefties in some of these emergency COVID cases, for example, where the chief joined the lefties to um, to, to, to either to, to basically leave a state law in place. Um, you know, I, I don't know, but I think it's, it is to me reason enough. I mean, I just, I... I don't, I, there's a, I understand and yet don't understand the hurry. Like, in other words, I understand that the Republicans are desperate to fill the seat. I accept because it's obvious that they can't, I, I accept because the answer is obvious that they have the constitutional power to do so. I don't understand the rush to do it before the election for any reason other than that specter. Like, you know, um, or, or, right, an even more troubling argument, which is that they're worried that they wouldn't have the votes on the far side of the election if, in fact, Trump loses and the Republicans lose the Senate. Like, that to me raises sort of independent legitimacy concerns. But on like a pure, like, I mean, if, if there's another Bush versus Gore in the Supreme Court, I mean, the first thing is I suspect there'd be a lot of pressure on on a Justice Barrett to recuse in such a case. There, right? None of the justices in Bush versus Gore had been appointed by Bush. <laughs> um, and, and none had been appointed by Bush who had said publicly that they wanted them, that he wanted them on the court entirely because they'd be there in time to resolve election disputes, which Trump has said. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm relatively um, skeptical, right, that, that Amy Coney Barrett's going to provide the fifth vote in favor of Trump in one of these cases. But um, I think the easiest way to prevent even the specter of that is just to sort of put off the final vote until November 11th. Um, I, I think their, their, their rush, I think this is a political calculation that, that it's, I think they all feel that it advances those who are pushing this so fast feel it advances overall the most benefit to the to the vote, get out the vote, getting people excited, et cetera. Um, and, I'm not sure that's true. And, the polling, and, the polling, the, the 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 further part of it is that it once you're past, if Trump's defeated, once you're past that, then you do run the risk that you know what if Mitt Romney or somebody then says like, okay, at this point, no, it's not okay. So I think that their idea is the best way to keep. The, the requisite number of votes in line is just to get it done before before you know who's won. And if they do it that way, they minimize their risk and they get what they're trying to get. I, th- I think that's the main. Uh, but isn't, but isn't, isn't that conceding? But I mean, I mean, that that to me is not I mean, I agree with you that that's the calculation. I don't think that that is I mean, to me, that is conceding that this is, you know, purely a power play. Right. And that, I mean, in, in other words, right, that that to I me, I mean, but 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 to me, this would this would feel a lot more legitimate. Right. If they said we're going to vote, we're going to have the hearings now, we're going to vote, you know, after the election, because at least then, I mean, <sighs> rushing the process, right, having the hearings faster than we've seen since 1975, when you had a, the, the completely non-contentious nomination of John Paul Stevens, Um you know, just I don't know. It, that's where I think the legitimacy concerns arise, Bobby, because it looks like they are trying to avoid the American people when all of the polling that I've seen suggests that there's actually a pretty significant majority who don't think Trump should fill the seat, including at least some folks who support Trump. So, but, I mean, or least- but they're 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 not looking at the the overall polling, right? They're looking at uh, the effect on their own. Each for those who are currently running, they're looking at the president's race. They're looking at the ones of them that are in in a race this term. Uh, and at the end of the day, I think it's it's as simple as McConnell and the White House both 
wanting seeing the maximum benefit and the least risk of failure by going early. And they know that there's there's increased risk of failure once they get past the election. Um, I I think I agree with you that uh, maybe another way to approach this sort of question of would she make a difference on any of these issues? I can think of all sorts of, of judges who might have been selected that Trump has appointed to other positions who I'd have much bigger concerns about, about whether they would be, uh, shall we say, extremely deferential to executive decision-making, even in contexts where rule of law values might seem to suggest the executive might lose. I don't see any sign in, in Amy Coney Barrett's, uh, what, what I know of her writings, that her areas of interest, and, and now her opinions. I don't see any big sort of the executive is going to win sort of no matter what type indicators. I don't see her as that sort of conservative. Um, and so on on some of these like really critical, how are we going to get through the next three or four months issues? Um, I think that this situation could be much different than it is, could be much worse. They could be pushing through somebody who has a, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, Judge Rao. It could be Judge Rao. And, and that would be a, I'd be considerably more concerned. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I have... I have really both sort of strong and conflicting emotions um, about all of this. And, and I certainly, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly that yes, it could be worse. Um, I don't think that those who are both affirmatively supporting Judge Barrett's nomination and sort of openly gleeful about it are remotely appreciating the extent to which saying you know, well, she's a qualified woman with an incredible backstory who everyone likes and thinks highly of, right? Like, I mean, all of those things could have been said about Merrick Garland, except the woman part, right? Like the, you know, the, the, there's, there's a degree of sort of willful obtuseness on the part of those, including a lot of people you and I know, who are very publicly supporting her nomination as to how the same qualities were just completely irrelevant in 2016. And I think, there's a failure to appreciate just how bitter the sort of, you know, th- how bitter those who felt they were, who, those who felt they were burned in 2016 feel about this entire situation. Um, and that, you know, the court's legitimacy has, depends both on the justices being legitimate and on the court being perceived as a legitimate institution. And I just, you know, I'm just, I fear that rushing through a nomination in a circumstance where, Bobby, as you say, right, the most compelling argument for rushing is because if they don't rush, they might not get it. <laughs> um, you know, that that's an argument that sounds deeply convincing to people who want to be convinced by it. Um, and I think it's an argument that just reinforces why there are so many folks who, whatever they think about Amy Coney Barrett, um, you know, find this whole thing so just grossly distasteful. Well, so what do you think, let's assume that uh, she goes through over the next, you know, right before the election, which I think she will. And then Biden wins. And in fact, the Democrats get both houses. Um, are we going to see court packing? Um, so to, I, mean, I would say two things. One, not right away, right? I mean, you know, for all of the efforts on the part of the Trump campaign to characterize and caricature Biden as a puppet of the radical left, the entire reason why Biden is the Democratic nominee for president is because he's not, um, right? That because he's a centrist. Um, and his instincts are not going to run at all towards something as radical as expanding the size of the Supreme Court. Um, I, so at least right away, I think the answer is no, 
especially Bobby, if the court isn't perceived in the next five weeks as repeatedly trying to tilt the election in Trump's favor. Right. And right. then I would and, add to that, I think it's a really yeah. keen insight. And I would add to it that, you know, if you go back to the last serious engagement with this in the 1930s, yeah. uh, it took FDR a very long time to come to that point. But so in, that's where I was going. But in part, the, the reason he was eventually brought to that point was that the attempts, that specific things the federal government was attempting to do kept getting struck down. Unless and until you have things that the new Democratic administration in Congress are, are doing that, lo and behold, start getting struck down, that that is more likely to precipitate an actual push on this. Now, there will be people pushing for it, but I suspect you're right that there, there's not actually going to be that. Um, it's not actually going to be acted upon, I suspect, for just the reason you said. Yeah, and 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 the FDR example to me is exactly the right one, which is right. FDR came in in '33, but he doesn't actually propose court packing until after the '36 election because it's 1935. It's during the court. It's the court in '35 and '36, right? That really, really pushes back aggressively against the New Deal, and and that's what I think here, which is you know maybe maybe sort of folks talk about court packing. Um, but only in the sense that, like, you know, hey, Supreme Court, you know, new super conservative majority before you start striking down everything Biden and the new Democratic Congress do. Um, but th- there's one variable here, Bobby, which is there's still five weeks till the election. And, you know, just to sort of use one case as an illustration, there were a pair of applications for emergency stays filed yesterday in the Supreme Court, one by a pair of Pennsylvania state legislators and one by the Pennsylvania Republican Party. Um seeking a stay of a Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision that had basically said the state can count absentee ballots received up to three days after the election if they're not postmarked, right? Sort of on the theory that, you know, the presumption is that they were mailed on time, even if they're not postmarked. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that if if we see a rash of Supreme Court rulings, even on the shadow docket, even in these stay applications, where over three dissents the justices are staying a whole bunch of these state court decisions um, uniformly in favor of the Republicans. I think that's the one that's the one variable. That's the one, you know, yeah. that might that be, be the equivalent of striking down New Deal provisions that. Yeah, I could see that. Um, if only we had an expert on the podcast about shadow docket activity. That could, if only let's find that guy. <laughs> He's in Massachusetts, I thought. Um, uh, I was. Yes. Welcome home, by the way. I, I arranged Massachusetts style summer weather for you here in Austin this fall. All I have to say is we left, you know, we left from Massachusetts in, on the day it was 91 and then it was 37 in Massachusetts the next morning. And we got back to Austin. It's like, hey, we missed the rest of the heat. This is awesome. Yeah. Well done. Thank well you. Played, sir. Thank All you. right. Um, well, obviously, it'll be a continuing uh, theme of the show in the weeks ahead to watch the situation. By the way, do you have a favorite recommendation book or article as the single best go-to brush up on Bush v. Gore source for those who might think that would be an interesting thing to have recently reread in the weeks ahead. I know there was a compendium type book that was uh, sort of, I think it was just titled Bush v. Gore, but I can't remember who was involved in in co-editing that. I mean, I I still think that there are books about it. My favorite single thing is a Vanity Fair essay from October 2004. Um, And it's it's by, I want to say it's by David Margalik, um, and it's titled The Path to Florida. Um, And it walks through... I mean, the the Vanity Fair piece, Bobby, is heavy on the Supreme Court machinations. Like, it's heavy on Bush versus Gore itself, um, and not just the sort of background to it, but it is an incredibly... I think 
interesting read, um, and it has a lot of inside baseball and what happened at the court. Yeah, this is great. I'm on Vanity Fair's side now looking, and there it is in its original full display. So check that out. The Path to Florida. I will, I will read that with From you. the October 2004 Vanity Fair. And, and I, it's such a popular article that they've still it's still public on, on Vanity Fair's website. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, cool. All right. Well, can, can, I say, can I say one thing before we before we yeah, move on, on this though? Yeah. So I, I do think one thing I want to say just because you know I know we have lots of folks who 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 listen to our podcast for better or for worse. You know, one of the things I, I really think it's important to understand as we start making our way toward the election, and you and I will talk about this again as we get closer, is that um, the way elections work, right? Like um, it really is a state by state process, and. We don't actually the, the formal resolution of the election is virtually never never actually takes place on election day. Like what happens on election day, and even in the non-close elections, the election doesn't actually end on election day. All that's happening is that the news outlets are projecting that the election's over based upon you know in progress reporting of results and exit polls. And, and then and then losing candidates typically are Conceded, graciously right. conceding the defeat. Right. But the actual, I mean, there's no, in most states, actually, the ele- so the election does not end in a state until the results are certified by whoever the responsible state official is. Usually it's the secretary of state. There's usually, an, there's usually a time before which they can't be certified. Like that is to say, there's usually a statutory waiting period for certification. Um, and then there's the so-called safe harbor deadline under federal law, which is that if a state certifies its results within the first, I think, five weeks after election day, those results will be viewed as conclusive for purposes of the electoral college, right? So so the, I just, I want, as we start thinking about the election, like, yes, my fervent hope is that it's a blowout and it's over Tuesday night and it's called for Biden at like 10.30 or 11 o'clock when California comes in. Um, but if it's not, like that's not a scandal. And, right. I, and I just, I want, I you know, I want us all to sort of be, you know, be ready for the fact that if a tipping point or multiple tipping point states are too close to call Tuesday night, the fact that additional votes are going to get counted Wednesday and Thursday, especially from all of these mail-in votes, is not unusual. It's no. actually what <laughs> always happens. Yeah, just usually people don't care. Well, let, I agree with you that for the sake of the country, the 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 well, I was going to say the worst possible result. Um, it's no secret that I do not want Trump reelected. So, to me, the worst possible result is just that he gets reelected. But the worst worst situation is that it's so close that it creates a room for the fog of uncertainty to be exploited by people domestically or foreign who wish to divide us, and which is what would then happen, and that would be. That'd be awful. So and, and 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 right per the also speaking of of vanity or no this was this Mother Jones or Vanity Fair I can't remember but per per I think this is a Mother Jones story from over the weekend and that you might have a state legislature in one of the tipping point states that tries to actually um, declare its own slate of electors after determining that the certified results were fraudulent right I mean that's you know that's the nightmare scenario. Yeah, I, I keep hearing rumors of this. It, do you, is this the sort of thing people are just imagining various nightmare scenarios, or is there has there been any suggestion by any public officials that they might try to do that? How about the chair of the Pennsylvania Republican Party? What did he say? He said, you know, if there really are concerns about fraud, obviously we'll pursue whatever additional measures state law allows to us to ensure that we have a proper slate of electors appointed. 
So you think that's been interpreted to mean that under Pennsylvania law, he might be able to do something? Not he, but I mean, the legislature might. So, I mean, listen, 47 things have to go wrong in the exact right order to get to this scenario. But I'm just like, I don't, and I try very hard not to lose sleep over the doomsday scenarios, right? Because there are a lot of them. You got to prepare a little bit. So the the moral of the story is uh, vote early. Vote once, vote early. (laughs) And, And honestly, if you can, vote in person. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's the, the if same. you if you are able without jeopardizing your health to vote in person, vote in person. Uh, and related to that, if you are able, get out there and volunteer to be a poll worker because there's a lot of people who normally do that job who can't do that safely this time around. So if you can volunteer, um, Steve, we should look into how that works here in Travis County. Maybe we could do it too. Mm-hmm. Um, Indeed, we can have a special NSL podcast polling location. Would we be allowed to wear our T-shirts? I don't know if those would be seemed, deemed as electioneering. Uh, maybe we'll be. Maybe you can be the uh, the precinct judge or something that gets to decide that. All right, moving on. We've got some TikTok action. Um, we'll try to keep this brief, but there's some really interesting uh, legal analysis going on now, both as to TikTok and WeChat. Now, the state of play is that both TikTok and WeChat have been subjected to sanctions by presidential directive under IEPA, and the WeChat sanction is. Fully came into play on the day it was supposed to, but a federal magistrate judge in San Francisco has determined, has, has issued a preliminary injunction suspending enforcement of the sanction against IEPA on the grounds of First Amendment likelihood of success of WeChat challenging it on First Amendment grounds. The court's analysis makes two different arguments in the alternative. First, I think least persuasively, um, the court characterizes it as a, as a de facto prior restraint on the speech of everybody using WeChat. There's a whole sort of uh, factual assessment by the court that, de- that depicts WeChat quite accurately as this central mechanism if you want to communicate with people in China. It is indeed that, in part because the Chinese government refuses to allow analogous American companies to operate there. But setting that aside, it is true that if, uh, if WeChat couldn't be used by Americans to communicate back with China. That would cut down on their ability to communicate significantly. Um, So the court says, so therefore the right way to think about this is as a prior restraint of speech. Um, That just strikes me as sort of an apples and oranges assessment. The, The better argument the court makes, I think, is to move on to look at the regulation as effectively a time, place, and manner regulation of speech, triggering intermediate scrutiny. And And intriguingly, the court accepts that the government has not just a significant interest, but a compelling government interest uh, in its asserted national security grounds. But then if you look closely, what the court has done in that opinion is to define those interests a little more narrowly than the government itself does. So the government says the interest lurking behind this set of constraints is one, uh, fear of the, the data collection opportunities that Beijing gets from the existence of WeChat being used by so many Americans. Uh, Two, fear of pro-Beijing censorship that WeChat might be obliged to uh, implement, and indeed in some context clearly does implement. Uh, And then there's also sort of a throwaway asserted interest in, in the possibility the government of China might also use this for a disinformation platform. Set that aside. The court's analysis really ignores the censorship claim, which is part of the government's case, just doesn't say anything about it. So that's a flaw. Uh, But then as to the government's, the risk of data collection by the Chinese government, 
the court's analysis suggests that um, this is a, a substantial concern, but the government's uh, proposed solution, the sanction, is not narrowly tailored or sufficiently tailored uh, to meet that interest because it could be satisfied by narrower means, such as by having government employees forbidden from having WeChat on their phones. And that, to me, suggests that the court doesn't appreciate the magnitude and nature of the asserted data risk here, because obviously anything involving just government officials doesn't doesn't encompass the scope of what the government's concerned about. Meanwhile, so, but that's that's the rule currently. That's going to get litigated. We'll see if the government seeks interlocutory review or what's going to happen next. I don't think that First Amendment analysis probably is going to stand in the end for the WeChat case. For TikTok, it's fascinating because... It's a totally different ruling. Happened last weekend. Why last weekend? Because for a while there, everything was delayed or stayed by the White House itself because the White House initially was excited about a deal that had been announced that Oracle and Walmart were going to ride to the rescue and form some sort of new corporate venture with TikTok. Um, But as the details emerged and it became more clear um, what that involved, Eventually, the White House both started expressing doubts about the deal because it turned out it did not necessarily uh, involve any uh, access to the algorithm that TikTok uses, and and therefore it did not necessarily address the censorship risk. And then separately, um, there was also the likelihood that the U.S. companies involved would have only some limited percentage interest, at least for the first year of the life of the new entity. And at the same time, Beijing started expressing its doubts about whether it was going to uh, approve the same transaction for basically opposite reasons about fear of uh, this basically being a coerced American takeover of a Chinese company, which is perfectly sensible from their perspective. So Sunday night, the sanctions were due to kick in and Judge Nichols in, in the U.S. District Court in the District of Columbia issued an opinion that said instead of ruling on First Amendment grounds, he was going to rule on statutory grounds because IEPA actually has exceptions built into it where the IEPA authorities are not allowed to be used to directly or indirectly prohibit Americans from importing or exporting information or informational materials to or from a foreign country and separately a ban on uh, direct or indirect prohibitions on the exchange of personal communications that don't add, that don't involve transfers of value. Um, I've got a long piece up at Lawfare that breaks down why I think both those questions are actually harder than Judge Nichols suggested. But Judge Nichols found that TikTok, in effect, is the ban on TikTok is an indirect ban, at least, on the transfer of informational materials or a transfer of personal communications that don't involve transfers of value. Um, I think that's definitely going to be challenged by, by the government. We'll see. So watch this space. The TikTok story continues to be an occasion for us to say AIPA. It continues to be an occasion to think about how the First Amendment intersects in funny ways with um, these new virtual public squares that are not that are basically private property, but nonetheless have public square properties. And I think, Steve, we're going to have a lot more to, to comment on before these issues are wrestled to the ground. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. All right, good. Um, take us. I, I, will, I will say folks should read your lawfare piece because I, I found that super helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, all right. Speaking of... The uh, T squared Trump's taxes. <laughs> oh, Trump's taxes. Um, I, I don't even know. I don't even know what to say about Trump's taxes. I, uh, I, I don't even know. So the times has a blockbuster story. Uh, does this, I guess for our purposes, we don't need to rehash the whole crazy story of what the New York times reported or is ongoing 
in the process of reporting on an ongoing basis. But does this have any implications for any of the uh, subpoena cases we've been tracking on this show? So I don't think so. I mean, I was I was I was trying to talk about this yesterday. Um, obviously, some of the information that The New York Times is reporting um, is some of the information that you know, presumably Cyrus Vance in New York and the relevant House committees were trying to determine themselves through these subpoenas. The fact that the Times has reported it to me, Bobby, doesn't change any of the legal analysis in those cases. Um, it changes the optics a bit, I guess, in the sense that now there's less of a risk of prejudice to Trump, um, right, given what's already out there. Right, but right. that was yeah. that was never a central part of the arguments. Like, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, so, so I don't think it changes that. I, I will say that there's this wonderful question of how the Times lawfully obtained all this information. Um, I don't actually know anything about where they, what they've said, if anything, about where they got this. They said that they obtained them legally. They didn't say how. And what's striking about that is um, someone else pointed this out on, on Twitter or the internet or something. Um, there is one person who could lawfully have provided the New York Times with copies of all of the president's tax returns. And... Her is name is related? Melania. I was going to say, is she related to the president by marriage by chance? <laughs> <laughs> so that's awkward. Um, I, listen, I, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that the president is a tax cheat. I don't think it's a surprise, well, or a surprise to anyone who 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 already understood who the president is, um, that he has wildly exaggerated his gains, he has wildly underreported his losses, that he has claimed preposterous deductions for things like haircuts that he has you know it is quite an operation to to work that dude's hair yeah i don't think it's that much of an operation um i wonder some of the stuff that he does you know with regard to his children being consultants i mean there's all kinds of like you know i know there's oh you know this is what clever people do no this is not what clever people do there are plenty of clever people who minimize their tax burden without actually you know standing on the verge of tax fraud um for national security purposes, my broader concern is not that he somehow, you know, didn't pay taxes so many years and only paid $750 in taxes two of the last three years. My broader concern is all of the liabilities he has outstanding, right? right. And the, yeah, and, who owns this guy? And so, you know, it's funny. I, 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 I tweeted about this when the story came out, and there's a, a conservative law professor who will not be named, um, who went after me on Twitter because there is some public information um, to, you know, about sort of the, the, the formal holders of the liabilities, right? And the, which, which banks hold which liabilities. And I just want to say two things. One, that some of the liabilities, not all of it, two, even the public list in Trump's financial disclosure refers to a bunch of LLCs that have these completely shadowy, impenetrable names, was, was right. somebody was somebody tweeting at you to suggest like it's all above board? We know who the debt holders yes. are. It's just businesses, yes. but we yes. don't have any idea who any of these entities really are. They're they're front companies in many cases. A lot of them are front companies. We also don't know what's holding some of these notes, like what the collateral is, right? We don't know, you know, what is in response to. Uh, I mean, so so it's, it's all just to say, like you know, someone with this debt profile. I don't think Bobby could get a security clearance. Um, no, of course not. And, no. and that, that, <laughs> that's, not a, that's not a close call. And that ought to be a problem <laughs> for the president of the United States. Um, so, you know, there's a lot out there. All the people who are like, this is all above board. Well, if it were above board, why has Trump refused to turn over his taxes? Right. But, but separate from that, even if it's not strictly illegal, and I'm still not convinced that there's not a whole bunch of tax fraud in here, but even if it's not strictly illegal, the leverage that that kind of debt 
creates. And the incentives that creates for the president to make decisions one way versus the other in his official capacity as president is, to my mind, insanely disqualifying. Um, and, 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 and a very serious, Bobby, national security issue and not just a you know, political issue. No, that's right. Um, exactly. Nothing to add to that. All right. Anyway, we pivot to the land of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. There have been some disclosures. So every year, once a year, uh, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court is obliged to review. We talked about this endlessly on the show. They're True. obliged to review the the complex array of policy arrangements, uh, institutional design, and technological measures that come together for, for a variety of different entities, but especially NSA and FBI, uh, not just those two, but especially them, uh, as, as in some total being the way that those agencies use the Section 702 Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act Authority. This is the one where the target of electronic surveillance is a non-U.S. person who is outside the United States and the idea is that under Section 702, the government can issue directives once its, once its system has been certified as sufficiently protective of, of a variety of interests, including the interest of U.S. persons whose communications with foreign targets might incidentally be acquired and sometimes will be incidentally acquired in the course of targeting those foreign entities. Um, the procedures are meant to you know, safeguard and create a reasonable balance of interest in how it all gets dealt with, especially in the back end, when the government wants to query the database of 702 collection and might even want to intentionally query a U.S. person's name. So you have all these complexities. And once a year, the government comes into court and says, here's how we're doing it now. Here are the latest changes. Good enough. And generally speaking, Within a few months, we get an opinion from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. So far, it's always been, yes, good enough in light of this, that, or the other conditions or qualifications. And then for one year, the government has the ability under Section 702 to go it to go to any company that's subject to U.S. jurisdiction that has a piece of the communications infrastructure and say, hey, we've got a Section 702 certification. And under color of that authority, we've got this list of of uh, selectors, of phone numbers, email addresses, names of foreign targets outside the United States, we'd like you to cooperate with us as we try to collect on their communications. And, you know, if it, it's either a situation in which maybe it's going to Google because the foreign target has a Gmail address, and so you go to Google to get the account information, or it could be going to an internet backbone provider in, that's an American company and saying, hey, we need you to filter traffic looking for communications to or from the following selector. That's sort of the basic idea. Um, and we just about a month ago got the 2019, the public release of the 2019 certification that came out at the very end of 2019. Um, and it is, uh, it's the cause of a lot of controversy because as several of the, of the past opinions of a like kind have also shown, you continually, especially with FBI, I think, I think especially FBI, you have all these documented instances of uh, the, the government acknowledging to the court in route to the new certification that, look, we've got these problems. We didn't comply here. We didn't comply there. And uh, for critics, uh, it's very much a sort of like, you fooled me once. Now you fooled me twice. Now you fooled me three times. And it just keeps, up, keeps on getting approved. Um, 
For others, um, and, and I suspect you and I divide exactly in this way, for others, it's more of like, yes, this is an incredibly complex system. The government keeps revealing when they, de- they keep detecting and revealing to the court when they detect uh, problems and then they keep adjusting to change for it. Um, is, is that the divide between us probably? That, that something that just proves that we need stronger medicine or, or am I right that it shows you a complex internal compliance system that continues to find work to do? I think the answer is both, um, and and I would add sort of two points that are not that that, that I think are worth stressing as well. Which is the, the first point is the the December twenty nineteen opinion, right? That that we're talking about refers to an October twenty nineteen opinion that itself discussed um, um, the one of these compliance incidents, um, right? The the an NSA compliance incident. Um, but the October 2019 decision wasn't made public because compliance issues, according to the court, don't present, quote, significant interpretations of law, unquote. They're, they're um, questions of fact. They're stories of right. factual developments that are right. potentially extremely important, but they're not legal interpretation disputes. So I'm not sure that's true, right, because that depends upon what exactly the targeting and minimization procedures do and do not prohibit. But leaving that aside, even the December 2019 opinion, right, that one certainly does appear to include significant interpretations of law, because that's why OD and I released it, and yet no amicus was appointed. And the whole reason why we were supposed to have an amicus, right, under the USA Freedom Act, was for cases involving significant disputes and significant interpretations of the law. This goes back to the criticism I have always had of the watered-down version of USA Freedom, where it's still up to the court to decide whether an amicus would advance consideration of the issues, as opposed to having you know, someone else automatically involved in these cases, at least once a certain threshold is met. We appear to agree that the threshold was met at least for the December opinion, and yet still no amicus was appointed. Would it be an adequate solution to this particular concern if they simply made it the case that Section 702 certification decisions should always involve an amicus? Um, That would be a uh, necessary step to me. I'm not sure it would be sufficient, but it would at least solve this problem, right? Right. That, that, yes, yes. I mean, I think 702, I mean, this was a, listen, I argued this way back in 2015, right? That like 702 is not the same thing as Title I. There are, the, by volume, there aren't that many actual cases before the court. And the, the sort of the case to implications ratio is so different from a individual yeah. one-off Title I application. That makes a lot so, of sense. But because the other thing is, it, it, it occurs to me that like I would have more faith, Bobby, that your reading were defensible, um, right? That you know it's just the compliance system working the way it's supposed to, right? If there's an amicus if, involved. If yeah. there's an amicus, because you know, I don't the, the FISA court did all this on their own with no adversarial presentation, with no adversarial participation. And the fact that every time they do this, they find more compliance problems. Um, you know, yes, one way to say is, well, the compliance enforcement system is working. Another way to look at it is um, no matter what we do, there are still compliance problems. I, I would think that the easy way to the easy response to that is even if we're not going to tweak the substantive authorities, right, put more adversarialness in the process. And, you know, the fact that there is... presents a strong case for that because the certification process is, it's annual. It's all about interpreting section, you know, it's all about legal interpretation as applied to a particular fact pattern, but still legal interpretation. And 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 it has... I I guess the reason they didn't do it or they haven't done it is they're distinguishing, they're necessarily drawing a distinction between the idea that you're interpreting an important, you have a significant interpretive issue of law. Clearly, like if you're saying like, does the Fourth Amendment apply to this particular fact pattern? That would be one thing. But they seem to be saying like, 
Section 702 as a statute being applied to the latest proposed bureaucratic and technical issues, they're somehow assuming, well, that's not a significant legal interpretation. It's There's law, but it's not really being reinterpreted, I guess, is the line they're drawing. I understand that's the line they're drawing. I just think it shouldn't be their line to draw. And and for 702, especially where when you have these, I mean, what, what I think needs to be said about these compliance violations is that these compliance violations are often tilting in favor of potentially unlawful collection of Americans' communications, of content. And in those contexts, especially, it seems like the need for some for someone other than the FISA court and the government in the proceeding is paramount. Can, I want to, one qualification, I, I think I could be wrong about this. I think it's all the, all these errors, ref, or at least most of them, are about querying the database of already collected communications. I don't know that we have evidence here of a violation of the targeting rules. I think this is all so about I, the back-end collection. It, but even then, right? I mean, uh, violations okay, of that means... Back-end querying, not the collection. Right, but back-end querying still raises concerns about American I'm, content. Right, I'm absolutely not trying to minimize that, but okay. I think it's critical people understand there's no claim that Section 702 is being misused in order to collect on Americans when, in fact, it's supposed to only be targeting... Well, I, let, I think... Let, it let me be really clear to make sure that what I'm saying is, is, is not misunderstood. 702 authorizes collection targeting non-citizens outside the United States. I don't think anyone's claiming that actually that's being violated. The claims are about how that necessarily is going to sweep up lots of American communications. And then the government in various ways is querying the database to then access that information. That's where the battle is, I think. Okay. I mean, I just think that colloquially some might, I mean, I guess I, I chafe a little bit the notion that that's not about the content of Americans' communications. Like, yes, they may not be targeting Americans, but someone whose communications are wrongly intercepted by the government might not care if they were targeted or not, right? Like, well, that's, well, wrongly, Why is it necessarily wrongly intercepted if it was a proper targeting of a foreign, say, terrorism suspect, but it happened to have you on the call? That's I think that's that's expected, and that's not considered wrong. It's only wrong if someone mistakenly, uh, if someone violates the rules in querying the database to access that, that would be wrong. But it's not wrong to have it to begin with. Well, okay. I mean, I think the whole reason why it's not wrong to have it to begin with is because the rules prevent you from querying it, right? Like this is, I mean, like the 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 program is certified based on the based on the government's promise, right? That it's not going to do certain things to the data. And so you know, it, it seems to- It may even be worse. It, you may have a stronger point here than, let me let me sort of set that up. The, the rules actually don't constrain much, much to the frustration of privacy advocates. The rules really don't constrain querying very much at all. You're allowed to query basically at discretion if you document it now, uh, if you're looking for foreign intelligence information or even a, a wide var- variety of crimes. Uh, it's actually pretty striking, especially that criminal exception, uh, how broad the grounds are. What the December 2019 opinion uh, reveals is that there were, despite the breadth of areas that are proper queries, of course, there are things that are not proper queries, such as, you know, I, I think some of the examples given were uh, uh, screening the names of people who are applying to become police. And there, there are all sorts of weird sort of non-criminal investigative, non-foreign intelligence scenario examples that clearly were not proper uses, wildly, obviously not proper uses of the database. Um but I think the actual rules themselves, I think a lot of privacy advocates are very unhappy with where the line is currently drawn as to when FBI can go into the fruits of the database and go searching. True. All right. Um, 
There, that was not the only activity because the Ninth Circuit, Judge Burzon, has an opinion <laughs> in United States versus Moallen. Uh, and it's really, this is really kind of an amazing case. It's not getting the attention it deserves because of the way it ties in with sort of a, one of the, the bigger post 9-11 stories of, you know, I, I think, let me back up and say that I think that a lot of us like you and I, who kind of you know, lived through all this stuff over time now kind of see that there's, there's been a little bit of an end of an era sort of perspective where they're, they're all the big post 9-11 issues Still with us, but but they were back then. Now we were teaching students for whom this is all stuff that this just history to them. Guantanamo issues, uh, interrogation issues, and warrantless surveillance issues. Those sorts of things like stellar wind. And in one of the big debates from back in the day, from from after the public came to learn about um, the existence of bulk telephone metadata collection as part of the initial wave of counterterrorism measures. In the, in the realm of surveillance, um, one of the big issues was this question of whether that program, which was obviously so legally controversial, but was it even useful as a matter of policy? And there was a particular case that the government has often emphasized saying, hey, one instance in which the ability to do contact chaining with a suspect phone number to track down other people who, who might be in contact with that number that might then also be of counterterrorism interest. There was a particular example often touted of where this really did make a difference investigatively. And it ended up resulting in the material support prosecution, successful material support prosecution, the government said, of a group of men uh, who were sending money to Somalia. So these are those guys, um, one guy in particular. And and the, the irony of this opinion, it, it's kind of, it's almost funny. I know it's a serious stuff, but it's still kind of funny because what happens is the court says, look, the role of the telephone metadata program here, uh, frankly, that was all probably a violation of the Fourth Amendment. And we can talk about the rationale there in a second because I, I have my problems with the rationale, but that's what the court said. But then the court says, but you know, harmless error because in fact, this really, really wasn't useful to the investigation insofar as the evidence at trial was concerned. This got, you know, basically saying that this wasn't very relevant to the proceedings. And then there's this really almost funny footnote basically saying to the extent that, you know, there may have been public statements by government officials suggesting, in fact, it was really relevant. We just don't agree having read all of the classified and unclassified information. And it's quite a zinger in its own way. Um, and just a sort of another nail. Now, this program's defunct in part for this reason, but also in part because of the legal controversy around it. On the legal aspects, Moalan, the Ninth Circuit decision, uh, very much agrees with, first, the argument that the relevant statute, Section 215 or 50 U.S. Code 1861, was never properly interpreted to allow for bulk collection on the sort of the grand theory that it's relevant to an investigation to have everybody's phone numbers, since you never know whose phone number you might need after the fact, when you go looking for who was in touch with a suspect number. So they, they, they embrace that issue. And then they go further and say, anyways, this almost certainly was a Fourth Amendment violation, collecting all those bulk telephone numbers, which, of course, the government's position is and was that, well, that flies in the face of, face of Smith v. Maryland, the third party doctrine. For better or worse, these phone numbers were all third party business records in the hands of phone companies. And the court reasons that that's not right because as Carpenter teaches, changing technology, the, the 
different impact and significance of these mass databases that technology now allows um, call into question the the extent of and indeed the continuing viability of the third party doctrine. You know, that's clearly a view that that many people have have had. People have wondered about this. Um, that's not the law yet. Um, and it's certainly I I would not say it all was the law at the time this program was underway. Uh, and so I have a problem with the Fourth Amendment analysis there, even if I think that one day the, the law might go there. Um, but it's just kind of funny that the court then says, but never mind, because this really wasn't helpful in this particular case. This one famous example often trouted out. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm a little biased and conflicted on this because I adore Judge Burzon. I think this was a, a tough case. It, uh, I'm sure I'm sure you can appreciate the uh, knowing Judge Burzon as you do. Would you say that um, her her sort of like very careful, reticent way of describing how the case really just how this particular uh, collection just wasn't that important to the case anyway? Do you think she understood full well the yes. way that that was a zinger? Yes. Yep. Yes. She's not. She's not. Um, uh, um, the, the, folks might think many things about Judge Burzon. She is. She is as sharp as they come. All right, so pivoting across the country to the Fourth Circuit, Anti-Riot Act. <laughs> um, this it's is a riot. This is this this one's not a riot because this one's this one's a pretty ugly fact pattern. Um, so let's talk about the Rise Above Movement or RAM. These are, by their own account, quote, combat-ready militant group of new nationalist white identity movement. People whose basic function is to train for uh, physical assaults of people who are engaging in First Amendment protected activity at protests. These are these are violent anti-protesters, not counter-protesters, because they're not protesting against their protesters. They're anti-protesters, people who are using private violence to try to terrorize, intimidate, and physically beat and harm people who are engaging in protests, and they're doing it for, for uh, white supremacist reasons. So Michael Moselis and his co-defendant, they're from California. In 2017, they were involved in, in a couple of, of actual you know, physical implementations of the RAM strategy and purpose. And then they went to Charlottesville for the Unite the Right uh, fiasco in Charlottesville in August of 2017. And they get in, they get charged for conspiring to violate the Anti Riot Act. Anti Riot Act is a 1968 statute, very interesting. 18 U.S. Code section 2101 and 2102. Um, Steve, 1968. Uh, they knew a thing or two about protest and violence of protest at that time. Uh, the statute is has often been described as basically a reaction to. The, the unrest that occurred in, in civil demonstrations in the summer of 1967, but then especially the unrest following the assassination of Martin Luther King. So you get this statute that provides that whoever travels in interstate or foreign commerce or whoever uses a facility of interstate or foreign commerce, uh, and, that, and that's a classic federal government hook for why the federal government's legislating. And if you're using a phone, or, or otherwise to facilitate your uh, your activities, and that's going to be the hook. If you do that, if you if you travel or you use the phone or otherwise an interstate commerce facility with intent to incite a riot, it's a felony. And then it goes on to give variations of the incite a riot phrase. 
uh, to organize, promote, encourage, or participate or carry on in a riot. Notice that difference. Organizing, promoting, encouraging as distinct from participating and carrying on rioting. Uh, acting, uh, committed, committing an act of violence in furtherance of a riot or aiding and abetting others to do these things. That's all a felony. And then the statute d- defines riot in a certain way. And inside a riot is itself defined as, and this is recursive and, and sort of shows some bad drafting to say the least, def- inciting a riot is described as organizing, promoting, encouraging, participating or carrying on a riot. Um, so, uh, I'm sorry. No, I, I misspoke there. It, that's not the case. Sorry. Scratch what I just said. There's the definition of inside a riot or a definition for organize, promote, encourage a riot. And that's sort of jointly defined to include not uh, including, but not limited to urging or instigating others to riot, uh, but not including mere oral or written advocacy of ideas or expressions of belief that don't involve advocacy of acts of violence or asserting the rightness or the right to commit acts of violence. So the whole thing is clearly designed to try to strike that balance that the first amendment itself tries to strike that, that allows some space for advocacy or, or mere sort of academic endorsement of violence and violent activities versus the zone. The first amendment doesn't protect incitement to riot. And the question presented by these uh, defendants is, does the Anti-Riot Act actually thread that needle effectively? And the court, in an opinion by Judge Diaz says, look, as to these clowns, yeah, what they did was well within the unprotected core of inciting riots under the Brandenburg standard. What they acknowledged they did was prosecutable. And, and much of the statute encompasses that unprotected core. But the court says, you know, you look at this language of organizing, promoting, and encouraging. Clearly, there are versions of those concepts that that run afoul of the Brandenburg standard and are unconstitutional. They're just not relevant here. And the court says you can sever the statute in this way. And so we declare some of the words in the statute to be unconstitutional, but we still uphold the conviction of these guys. Um, that. Steve, that strikes me as, as exactly the right analysis. The statute's not well drafted relative to the Brandenburg standard, but they found a way to say as much and be honest about that without undoing its applicability to these particular persons. Um, anything problematic about it or, or troubling to you? Honestly, I didn't think so. I mean, my as I said, I think last time we recorded, like my reaction to this decision when it came out was good job fourth circuit like you know uh, yeah. here, here's a a tough case with a tough fact pattern on a really tough question and i think you know uh, a a diverse panel just crushed it yep i think the what's interesting therefore is not to there's not really a critique of the opinion that's interesting because i think i think we both agree the opinion was was like a really nicely wrought opinion um it's for listeners to be mindful that around the country there are a lot of state laws uh, that are similar and similarly have problems of fit with the First Amendment and the Brandenburg Standard. And I know that there are uh, lots of bills pending in various states, including here in Texas. I saw a reference to a set, set of bills that we might expect in the upcoming state legislative session, which for Texas is every other year. How about that? And ours begins uh, in this coming spring. And I think we'll talk about it on the show, this uh, 
a set of rules that are all sort of motivated by sort of Portland type scenarios. And the state of Texas is looking to tighten up the law in various respects. The the one article I saw describing this described a number of ideas that sounded well within constitutional bounds. But there was there was something that was described by the journalist in a way that sounded almost like, Steve, almost like material support to rioters or something yeah. akin to that. I have a feeling we're going to get a chance to parse that and, and, and raise questions about it, the boundaries of constitutionality there. But we're not there yet. Watch this space. Indeed. Um, I have a I have a quick breaking news update. It's not especially significant. Um, and by the way, we have we we now are big into the octonaut, so I totally am with you on creature report. Quasi peso. So we talked a long time ago about this uh, district court decision from March 2020 requiring the government to provide a mixed medical commission to Mohammed al Qatani, one of the Gitmo detainees who had been tortured. Um, Bobby, the government had tried to appeal that decision, and a three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit today has dismissed the appeal um, on the ground that there's no jurisdiction because the district court's order was not a final order, it was not an injunction, and it was not otherwise appealable under the collateral order doctrine. Oh, wow. Well, so That's it, um, that's it. Um, I mean, in theory, the government could go on bonk, but Judge Henderson was on the three-judge panel and didn't dissent, and I think that's yeah. a pretty powerful. Sounds like so, they want to touch that one. So, so this actually seems to suggest that you know Al Qatani is going to get his uh, his mixed medical commission after all. Very interesting. Um, all right. So speaking of Gitmo, right? Uh, yeah. So the, what was was Bergdahl next in our rundown? It was indeed. What's the latest Bo Bergdahl development? Oh, my gosh. All right. So um, about, gosh, is it a month ago now? Um, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces had rejected Bo Bergdahl's appeal of his conviction. Um, Bergdahl had appealed on the ground that his case was tainted by something called unlawful command influence, um, that public statements by both President Trump and Senator McCain had tainted and prejudiced the the proceeding to such a degree. Um, and the Army Court of Criminal Appeals had agreed that there was at least apparent unlawful command influence, but didn't think it was, but divided two to one on whether it was prejudicial. Um, CAF basically by a three to two vote, although there's a little bit of finicking at the margins, um, held that there wasn't even apparent unlawful command influence. Um, and that you know, ordinarily probably would have been the end of the matter. I mean, Bergdahl could petition for cert, but I'm not sure how much of a hurry the Supreme Court's going to be in to take a, an unlawful command influence case. Um, but Bobby, then a FOIA request um, for information on how the judge who presided over Bergdahl's prosecution, Judge Nance, became an immigration judge um, was, 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 was complied with. And so while Bergdahl's petition for reconsideration was pending, the government, a different arm of the government complied with a FOIA request and turned over all these documents showing that not only was Nance seeking employment as an immigration judge while presiding over Bergdahl's case, he used his opinion denying Bergdahl's motion to dismiss for unlawful command influence as his writing sample. <laughs> Dear Trump, Dear Trump administration, why should you hire me for a job as an immigration judge? Because look how I denied a motion to dismiss for unlawful command influence because I concluded that there wasn't improper influence by the Trump administration. Man, that is really wild. Now, if this sounds familiar, dear listeners, it's because it is. Um, the, not, I mean, there, there's so much in parallel here between what happened to Judge Spath and the Nashiri case. And Nashiri 
all the stuff about SPAS application only came out through a FOIA request that was honored while Nashiri's mandamus petition was pending in the DC circuit. And the best part, Bobby, is just as you might remember in Nashiri, the government ab- opposed Nashiri's motion to supplement the record, right, with the FOIA materials. Yeah. Yep, yep, um, yep. They're doing it here too. They've opposed Bergdahl's motion to supplement the record uh, on the ground that, like, you know, this should have been discovered earlier. <laughs> to which, to which my response is, by whom? I mean, like, oh, yes, boy. you knew this earlier, government, but Bergdahl didn't. Anyway, I I don't know if this is actually going to do anything. I, I don't I don't know if this is going to change anything in CAF because Bergdahl is not seeking. Um, He's not seeking Vance's disqualification. He just wants the he's he's trying to get Kath to reconsider whether his case was tainted by unlawful command influence. But man, this 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 adds to the taint, one might say. It uh it is just ridiculous how this keeps happening. I mean it's almost like there's a structural problem with military. I mean, so so for folks who don't know the system, I mean, the, here's the problem. The problem is is that, you know, for for most um, military judges, right? They're serving as military judges at their terminal rank. So usually, you know, 06, right? Colonel or captain in the Navy. Um, and they're up and out, right? That, that like they're, you know, they're reaching retirement and yet they're retiring early enough in their lives that they still want to, you know, um, be gainfully employed. They're attracted to immigration judge or other ALJ positions because they get a bump, Right, because of their prior judicial service in the military, that actually both raises their qualification level and it raises their salary eligibility level if they get the job. Um, so that you know, they actually have getting paid pretty handsomely for civil servants. And I think, I mean, even before this phenomenon, there have been a bunch of folks, and I'm one of them, who've been saying for a while that we should be rethinking how we do military judges. Um, whether whether you want more civilian judges or whether you want more protection so that you have you know military judges who are not looking over their shoulder for their next job while hearing yeah. these high profile cases yeah there is there a way to structure this so that it's far less likely that while you're serving as a military judge that's going to turn out to be the last thing you did before you before you uh, retire i mean you could you could increase terminal leave periods right so that you know the you wouldn't apply for a job until you were done in your last duty station. Um, you could simply make you, you could actually incentivize you could you could create incentives to actually stay in the military at your terminal rank. So like you could make judge a terminal position, but re- but remove the other sort of uh, time and service constraints, right? So that people could actually be long term military judges, especially if they met certain, you know, I don't know, substantive prerequisites. I mean, there are lots of ways to fix this problem. I think it is increasingly clear it's a problem. Yeah, I, you've certainly persuaded me over 180 episodes. And by the way, it's like every other episode we have to talk. I about. know, seriously. How, just, how many times have we just, talked about? Yeah, this is sort of just a, a great example of sort of endless friction, real problems from something that's clearly fixable. Just people haven't focused on it and don't seem to care enough about it. But it, but it's causing a fair amount of problem over time. Well, and listen, I mean, it's it's obvious why it's a problem in these high-profile cases. I'm not sure it isn't a problem in lower-profile cases. They just have lower profiles. Well, exactly, exactly. Like, you wonder, like, is this not possibly, certainly at least an appearance of impropriety far more often than we think. Um, all right, so now you mentioned earlier we have a new uh, 9-11 trial judge. Oh, yes. And so speaking <laughs> – um, 
I'm oh man. So um uh uh Marine Colonel, speaking of Colonels, Marine Colonel Stephen F. Keene um has been assigned as the new presiding judge in the 9-11 military commission trial. Um if you're keeping score, Bobby, since August 2018, so two years and one month ago, 25 months, Keene is now the fifth, fifth judge to preside over this case. Um right there was what? There was Pohl, there was Perella. Cohen, Watkins, and now Keene. Um, and, and, and folks wonder why this case is still interminably dragging along and in pretrial proceedings. And Is there any chance Judge Keene will actually be able to still be the judge by the time this gets to trial? Um, is there a chance? Sure. Is it a good <laughs> chance? No. <laughs> I don't. I, what can I say? What can I, say? I can't say anything I haven't said before. This is ridiculous. But I mean, again, I mean, so so you know, this goes back to every when we talk about why the military commissions are failures, right? I mean, I do think that there are structural constraints that are a big part of the problem, including you know having this done in a having these decade long trials presided over by judges in a system that's used to having trials take no more than two to three months. Yep, can only agree. Now I like that. Let's pivot to some real fun. We got to fill out a just, just, just because we've already been talking for an hour and 16 minutes? Yeah, no, let's let's end this as fast as we can. I got other work to do. Um, yeah, me too. Okay, tonight is the debate. Um, I, I wish it were the case, but I know it won't be the case, that they're going to spend all their time talking uh, in sort of a what is in the country's best interest about a variety of ah! national security issues, you know, such as that the United States is remains on a war footing and using military force in a variety of places around the globe. We uh, are. We do. Uh, okay. So, question. Uh, I've got a. I've got a table open here. I'm plugging words or topics and areas into it. Um, is Afghanistan going to be mentioned tonight? No. I'm going to put it in there anyways because damn it, it ought to be. What about Iraq? So, can we have an Iraq Iran sort of joint joint category? Iran, much more likely than Iraq. I think Iran. I, th- I, me, I think Iran's, Iran slash Soleimani is, I think, high on the list. Should we? Okay. Should we? Iran's an easy one. It's like it's very hard to imagine that Iran won't be mentioned. Yeah. But uh, Soleimani, because you know, it's we got to make this a little hard. So, Soleimani. Okay, okay. How about this? Merrick Garland. <laughs> okay, Garland. Nice. Uh, well, well that, that's not that's not that's not a guarantee, right? I mean, that would only be no, no, like we won't, no these aren't predictions. These are, we're kind of going for an array of uh, obvious. You got okay. some obvious things. Um, what about some some adjectives? Do we think the adjective disgrace will make an appearance or embarrassment? Is there is there an adjective a prediction of some sort of hard critique type adjective you would expect Biden might lodge? I think maybe the um, Trump calling soldiers, what do you call them, losers? Oh, losers. Let's get losers in there. Losers? Yeah. I'll put uh, parentheses around the S so it doesn't have to be plural. Yes. Loser uh, or loser. Loser okay, or. Uh, will, will Ruth Bader Ginsburg's name be used tonight? Hmm. And will Amy Coney Barrett's name be used? Barrett for, oh, Barrett for sure. Trump's going to. I mean, Trump's, Trump, if Trump doesn't show up wearing a notorious ACB t shirt, I'll be surprised. All right, so Barrett. I'm kidding. He won't show up wearing a notorious. Right. But but he's gonna he's gonna. I, I would think I would think the question is how many times he mentions Amy Coney Barrett, not not just once. All right, let, yeah. So for that one, how about uh, let's put a requirement to earn this square. It has to come up three times. Her Ooh, name. It, it could the, be it could be initial. It won't be initial. Yeah. 
It could be just the last name or the full name, but but yep. she has to be mentioned by name three times. Right. Can can one of the boxes be Trump botches an unbotchable word? Trump mangles and uh, botches. Yeah, okay, got it. Totalitarianism. Unbotchable word. Although although he's not reading off a teleprompter, so maybe that's unlikely. Um, so the whole teleprompter thing. My God. Um, Russia and China surely both mentioned. Uh, Sleepy Joe. Think he'll say it? Let's put that on there. That's the... okay. Wait, Sleepy Joe. Um, you know, uh, one thing that's common with Biden's style, this sort of kind of like 1950s sort of way, like, hey, hey, bub, bud, buddy. Like, if he gets mad. If Biden gets mad, will he refer to him as Bub or Buddy? Is that like something you think he would do, or is that a little far fetched? Uh, I don't know. All right, I'll drop that one. We need, need a replacement, though. Um, will the phrase "tax dodge" or its equivalent yes make its appearance? Yes. Portland. Will we'll, Portland. We'll, we'll, we'll seven. Will seven hundred fifty dollars? Seven hundred fifty dollars. Oh, seven hundred fifty dollars. That's good. Yeah, that's on there. Um. Um, I'll take tax I, dodge out and I'll put seven hundred fifty dollars in. That's much better. I don't know if he says Portland, George but Floyd. George, yes, George Floyd, my name. Uh, anarchist jurisdictions. Oh, anarchist jurisdiction. That's a mouthful. Or Anarch- Black Lives Matter. Anarch- how about anarchist slash BLM? Well, those two. You know, such. I'm putting in some version of anarchist. Let's leave anarchist in there. BLM I'll give its own square. Uh, Affordable Care Act. Yes. Pandemic, obviously. I think that's <laughs> a good one. But or it, COVID, yeah. What What's a more interesting way to probe that? Um, 200,000. Does someone mention how many people are dead? How about COVID, de- COVID death toll? I think 200,000 in particular is, if you're Biden, how are you not prepped to say say the number? Um, Trump will say China virus, but I don't think I want to put that on here. That's too obvious. He's going to say that. What else? Um, it's quite a word cloud we've got here. Seriously. Uh, um, well, he used the phrase very powerful. I don't know, but, uh, uh, he's going to say, he's going to call something fake news. Uh, fake news. So here's what we got so far. Very powerful. Afghanistan, China. Embarrassment, 200,000. Soleimani, Barrett, Barrett, Barrett. (laughs) Wall, Garland, Trump botches an unbotchable word. Loser, BLM, Affordable Care Act, Russia, Sleepy Joe, George Floyd, Portland, terrorist, fake news. Uh, Socialist. Socialist. Or socialism. I, I will accept either. Anarchist. Failure. All right, I got room on the board for one more. One more. Um, some sort of a description, um, some sort of physical thing that could happen. Uh, so, you know, like your Trump botches and unbotchable words, something other than like just a code word. Um, how about Biden's stutter that is blown out of proportion by conservative media? Too hard to judge in real time, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, um, uh, um, misrepresentation of current job numbers. 
that might require actually me knowing it's analysis and interpretation. Real analysis. It's something. Is there any kind of prospect of physical confrontation or physical awkwardness on the stage? Or nah, they'll sh- no. they'll shake hands. No, will they? Bots. You know, Trump. You remember know, remember Trump walked out from behind his podium yeah. to yeah. try to physically intimidate in the yeah. past. Will uh, will we see some form of weird? physical intimidation attempt? I, I don't think so, right? Because I think yeah, Biden might actually yeah. pop him one. You know what would be awesome, though, if Biden walks out in a mask? Should we and put that on off. No, it's not going to happen. Um, how about... Oh, Second Amendment. Second Amendment. Got Which it. has nothing to do with anything, and therefore Trump will bring it up. All right. I think we got a complete... Uh, we have a complete card here. I will get this out on our feed. Good times. All right. We've got a God really long us. episode. We should end it. Um, I mean, these days, what can you do? All right. Um, I, 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 Bobby, 2020 needs to just stop. <laughs> Yippers. But, um, but 2020, I'm afraid, has just been warming up. Well, it would be nice to slow down. All right. He's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, if you're going to watch the debate tonight, you know, Watch responsibly. And if you're not going to watch the debate tonight, um, I commend you. Stay safe out there. Adios.